The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert on a very, very cold day here in Washington. But I guarantee you that this discussion will warm you right up, no matter where you are in the country or in the world. Uh, We have been talking about some really serious subjects over the last couple of weeks, and I thought it would be good uh, to shift gears a little bit uh, to have a little more fun. And I can guarantee you that my two guests today, uh, we're going to have an absolutely great time. Uh, Some of you may be aware of a program, um, an organization called Museum Hack, uh, based in New York City. Uh, They provide non-traditional tools. Uh, currently at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, the tour guides are professional, well-educated, and truly outrageously funny. Uh, in all seriousness, though, they have a lot to teach uh, us in the museum community about uh, loosening up, uh, having fun, uh, truly respecting audiences, and digging deep to get the best stories. With me today, uh, Nick Gray, who is the founder and CEO of Museum Hack, uh, based in New York City. Uh, I'm going to let him, uh, he'll have an opportunity here in a minute to share a little bit more about his background and about what started uh, this wonderful uh, organization. And with him is uh, Ethan Angelica, who is the um uh, Museum Hack Tour Guide and Head of VIP Partnerships. And also, I'm going to let uh, Ethan give a little bit of his background and his journey to uh, what has brought him where he is today. Uh, Nick and Ethan, welcome to the show today. Welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, It's a pleasure. Nick, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of background about how Museum Hack got started? I would love to tell you that. First, I want to say, if anyone listening now, if you are a museum professional, I want to thank you for your service to museums. We love museums, and we're excited to share that message with a whole new type of audience. I don't come from a museum background, actually. I didn't grow up going to them and never really took an art history class. I moved to New York City about seven or eight years ago, 
And uh, I, I knew of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Have you been to the Met before, Carol, by the way? Oh, yes, many times. Yeah, it's like an amazing institution. And yet, for me, it really was more of a tourist attraction than a place I had a relationship with. Do you know what I mean? Have you I, ever? Ab- absolutely. Uh, it's a... the. I think the challenge, particularly with our venerable large museums, whether it's the Met or, let's say, uh, the Louvre uh, or the Prado, is that they are so large. And uh, uh, while they try to be welcoming, it's a little tough with all of those uh, uh, marble columns. It's hard, right? It's ginormous. The Metropolitan Museum of Art takes up 13 acres of Central Park. That's like 50 soccer fields, I think. Um And so I had been there before, but I didn't have a relationship. Long story short, a woman brought me there on a romantic date. She suggested that we go there. It was a Saturday night in the middle of December, and it was very cold, and it was very snowy out. The Metropolitan Museum is open late at night on Friday and Saturdays, which was awesome to me. And as she walked around and showed me paintings and sculptures and Egyptian artifacts... I really began to have a different feeling about the space. And I got to feel like maybe I moved to New York for things like this. So the following weekend, I went back again. I fell in love with the museum. I started going back on my own, just really as a tourist who was really interested in the museum. And I did every single thing I could. I did audio tours. I followed guided tours. I joined the Young Members Program. I went as many times as I could, and I started to find things that I love tucked away in little hidden corners, and I researched them, and then I would try to do tours for my friends to show them, just for free, for fun, the favorite things I'd found at the Met. Wow. You know, and how very timely that your museum obsession started on a date, and here we are so close to Valentine's Day. I love it. I love it. Ethan is laughing because he hates Valentine's Day. Oh, Ethan, come on. So, I'm, Virtual I'm giving, chocolates to you. No, thank you. I'm given I'm given uh three tours at the Met this Valentine's Day, so we're gonna have a lot of fun. Okay. <laughs> um, all, all, all the heart chocolates to everyone. <laughs> Nick, did you uh, wanna follow up? Well, that- That's kind of where I got started with museums and how I fell in love with the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I began doing these tours for my friends for free. One weekend, a a blog wrote about us, and over a 1,000 people emailed me wanting to join my tour. At that point, I realized I needed help, and I needed some, some friends to help me give the tours. Eventually, about two years ago, I figured that I wanted this to exist beyond just a hobby project. At the time, I was working for an aircraft electronics company and completely not related to art. I did that all during the week. And on on the weekends, I'd do these tours for free. Anyhow, I think I mentioned I left my job about two years ago. uh, And I've been working on Museum Hack full time since then. Today, it's grown beyond just me. We've got a great team of people with Ethan. And we just did a new casting call the other day. We're going to hire a whole new crew. And I, I think that's fabulous, and we'll we'll come back to this too. The uh, the the uh, the terminology you use uh, instead of calling it a docent training program to call it a casting call. I think that that says an awful lot about your philosophy. 
Cool. I love to talk about it. We will. But Ethan, I want to get you um, in into the discussion a little bit. Could you just say uh, then how you became involved in Museum Hack? Uh, sure. So I come from a, a sort of performance and, and uh, Renaissance man background. My, my degree was originally in theater and Middle Eastern studies. And when I moved to New York City, what I realized I liked to do was tell people stories about awesome things that I had researched. And I had a, a long career as a performer, uh, toured all over the country. But while I was doing that, I continued to work uh, as a museum educator whenever I'd be back in New York City. And I realized as I was doing that that I was getting a lot more fulfillment being on the ground with people in museum settings, uh, telling them things that I was truly passionate about and getting them as excited as I was about different objects or different concepts. Um, and so uh, about, it's been a little over a year now, I read an article about Nick and Museum Hack on a blog called Lifehacker. Um, and I was reading about what he was doing and some of the things that were starting to happen. And I said, I, I, gotta, I gotta get in on that one. So I went to one of uh, Nick's casting calls, uh, which in this case was actually at a grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nick asked me to, to talk two minutes very passionately about some food object that I had found there. So I told him about coffee and why I love coffee, uh, and things sort of have moved on uh, from there, and I've, I've grown with the company. I've had um, some pretty incredible opportunities with them to, to not only lead tours and get people as excited about uh, objects in the Met and at times the Museum of Natural History as I am, but also to start to take some of the techniques that we have created in order to engage new audiences or teach people to reignite their own passion about objects and and things that they talk about in the museum. Uh, I've had the opportunity to bring that to other places that are interested in what we're doing and learning some of our techniques. Great. And I want to come back to uh, those those uh, teaching uh, projects that you're doing in workshops because, frankly, and as you and I talked a little bit before, that uh, is really what drew me to, uh, to the uh, potential scalability of Museum Hack. Absolutely. Uh, but before we get, uh, we get there, Nick, could you uh, help us understand then uh, the business model you've created? I mean, clearly you took a leap of faith, but uh, you know you knew through your uh, the responses you were getting to the this blog and your own own friends that there was certainly a need out there. Yeah, so many people really connected with the style of museum tour that we were given. That we figured, yeah, I think that there's a business out of this. To be honest, when we started this company, and still today, we make use of a lot of part-time labor. Because most museum tours are given on Friday, Saturday, and Sundays, right? And the original business model for us was just to do museum tours on Friday, Saturday, Sundays. And we would hire individuals who could help us out on the weekends. And that would totally sustain the business. Now, two years has passed and we've been approached by museums all around the world who want us to lead workshops, produce special events for them, and things like that. And the business model has shifted as well. Should I talk about how the business model started or where it yes. is today? Yeah, why don't, why don't you just uh, give us a little bit of a, uh, of a background about how it started, particularly um, you know, in working with, say, uh, the Met and then expanding. And then we can, can talk about how it's, it's uh, scaled up and um, you know, where, where you're going today. Great. 
I would love to talk about that. How we work with the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the American Museum of Natural History is we go through their group services office. So we are a third-party tour supplier, basically. Similar to how a foreign language tour group might show up with a bus full of tourists and operate that group entirely on their own, Museum Hack goes along the same routes. Now, we do all of our own marketing ahead of the time. We sell all of our own tickets way in advance. And so we're bringing an entirely new audience into the museum. And in our ticket price now includes the cost of admission and our museum hack fees as well. So that's kind of the business model. Let's suppose that we have a $59 price of a ticket. 20 of that goes right to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The rest of it goes to Museum Hack, and that's how we pay our staff and our marketing and all those fees. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to put you on the spot, but how does that, uh, that fee compare to other, uh, say, third-party vendors who are you know, bringing their busload of people, for instance, to the Metropolitan? Do you have a sense of where you fit into that market? That's a great point. I think we're about on par with other high-end entertainment and tour type experiences, but Museum Hack is not a, how can I say this? We're not a busload of tour company. All of our groups really feel more like a private tour. On average, we have about six or seven customers per guest. So it really is a small, intimate I mean, we like to think of it, we joke, we say that these are VIP museum tours, and our customers really do feel that way. Right. So in in a way, it would be analogous to, for instance, when I was uh, uh, at the Prado about a year ago where a, you know, I walked in, I purchased my ticket, and in that uh, situation, a guide came up to me and asked if my husband and I would like a private, uh, you know, tour of the Prado, of course, for a fee. Yeah, it's somewhat similar to that, although the one thing I can say is we never do on-site sales. All of our tickets are sold days, weeks, even months in advance. And so when we show up to the museum, we're not, I don't know a way to say this, we're not skimming off the top of their existing revenue or their existing customers. I'm not holding a sign out there and approaching. These customers have come to the museum for a special museum hack tour And I think that's really plays to the growth of the business, that we are attracting a whole new type of audience. So when you went to the Prado, you were going to go to the Prado whether there was that guide there or not. Is that right? Right. Oh, absolutely, because I'm a museum geek. Yes, (laughs) because you're a museum geek. How does it fare with the sort of price that you've experienced, Ethan, with other Tours and experiences in the city. Um, yeah, I, in terms of tours uh, of uh, of institutions here, we're very much. I think we're on par with some of the the group experiences. Although, as Nick is saying, we are we do keep that sort of very small, intense group experience. Um, I've been looking into other things uh, in other cities as we've been debating what possible next steps might be uh, for us. And honestly, we oftentimes are either on par or slightly below some of the other experiences out there. Um, But if you're thinking about, um, I also work with a lot of people who sell tickets for us in other venues. Um, In terms 
of an experience, a, a two-hour experience, you know, I'm thinking other, other two-hour or three-hour experiences you could have in New York City. Um, the ones that pop to mind are things like a Broadway show that might happen on a Friday or Saturday night starting around 6.30 or 7. Um, those are going to run you, you know, $150. So you can it's – a, it's a different kind of experience. But when you look – if we think about opening up the market to people who, you know, might want to – instead of thinking about going to see a Broadway show, they would come and do an awesome museum experience for the evening. We're very much on par with what, with what people are – are, are spending uh, in, in this time. And it's cool to sort of think about trying to redirect some of that attention back to the museum world and saying, we're a super viable option for your awesome, amazing Friday and Saturday night. Yes, that. Thank you, um, Ethan. I think that 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 is helpful. Um, you know, you sort of uh, it helps us understand the market a little little bit uh, better. And as you say, you need to normalize it. You are in New York City, one of the more expensive uh, markets for uh, any kind of entertainment and and education. So I mm-hmm. I, I do appreciate that. Um, I, I you probably know what is your percentage of local versus tourist? That's a great question. I love to think about audience demographics and the makeup of who comes to our tours. We have two types of public tours. Let's just look at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And there's two types of public tours that we regularly run every weekend. Number one is our daytime tours. This is called an unhighlights tour. And I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, Ethan, but I would estimate that on our daytime tours, maybe 70% are tourists. Yeah, it tends to be a a larger out-of-town market on that one. Although we do get a lot of people who just want to have a fun afternoon who are, you know, locals in the city who just want to come and hang out with us. Right. (laughs) That's definitely true. On our daytime tours, while we do get some local New Yorkers, I'd say the, the vast majority of our customers are tourists and out-of-towners. However, the nighttime tours that Ethan mentioned, the ones we do on Friday and Saturday nights, those were originally designed for New York City residents. And I'd say still on those, maybe 60... Yeah, it's decidedly over half. And more more likely than not, everybody will be from New York or nearby. Yeah. Interesting. And do you... can Are, are they... I mean, obviously, they're New Yorkers, but are they skewing to the younger group? Now, I realize everyone to me is younger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What is younger to you, Carol? How do we phrase that? Um, Well, let's just skip over that and also phrase the question a little bit. Um, What percentage of your uh, evening uh, audience would you say are in the 20, 30 age range? Under 40, let's say. That's that's our primary demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, when I you know when I show up, everybody is is right in my age group, friend group, in the sort of millennial set. So it's I'd say over fifty percent consistently, most of the time, closer to seventy five and very likely a hundred percent. Those are the people who are coming to have this experience in the museum with us, um, and it's really exciting. The idea of being able to have a nighttime event in a peer-led situation where we're all creating and curating an experience together is—I mean, I—I'll I, say it right now. I fight tooth and nail for the Friday and Saturday night tours. I think they are so much fun, um, both as a, as a leader, but also as a this sort of team that is created and this experience that we all get to have together. Um, a bunch of millennials in a museum hanging out and really 
experiencing it in a new way, it's the best thing I can do any Friday or Saturday night. That's that. That's fabulous. And we are going to take a short break now. And when we come back, uh, we're going to, of course, more with uh, Nick and Ethan, but also I'm going to put uh, Ethan on the spot a little bit to just give us a tiny bit of the flavor of what a tour is really like uh, with him at the, um, at the Met. So we will be back in a moment. Remember, you can always contact me at uh, carol.bossert at verizon.net or uh, you can connect with me on Twitter and at MuseWrite. Uh, let me know what you're thinking about. Let me know what topics we should be talking about. And just uh, just to say hello, I love to get to know my, uh, my listeners a little bit better. So we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You are, of course, listening to Museum Life. And I am here today with Nick Gray and Ethan Angelica. And they are sharing with us... uh, 
discussions about their business that they are doing called Museum Hack. Uh, currently, it is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and also the American Museum of Natural History. And I know that it's going to be coming uh, to a museum near you in the very near future. But before we talk, uh, because I, as I said, I find this business model fascinating, and I think you have so much to teach us uh, in the museum world. I always love for uh, others to come in and help us reflect our vocabulary. But before I get uh, back into the nuts and bolts, Ethan, as I promised, I'm putting you on the spot. Oh, now, boy. I know. Now, remember, remember, this is radio. So <laughs> we don't have a painting for you to stand in front of. But so I want you to be standing in front of a virtual painting uh, or sculpture, your choice, and give us just a tiny flavor. Remember, we only, it's an hour program. Mm-hmm. So uh, give me just a little tiny flavor flavor of how you uh, might present a, uh, a, a part of a tour. Okay. Well, let me tell you about my favorite thing in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So there are 270,000 objects on display at any given time, which is about 10% of their collection. My favorite thing is tucked away deep in the back of the Islamic art section. It is an astrolabe. And I show up with everyone there and I ask them what they think this big piece of metal could be used for. And we bounce around a couple ideas and I say, great, exactly. You have identified the 13th century Islamic version of your iPhone. So let's break that down. I ask people what they do with their phones every single day, and the first thing they say is, oh, yeah, I pull out of my pocket and I check the time. And I say, great, 13th century Islamic world, not going to happen. So what do we do? We take this thing, we aim it at the sun, we get an angle, we use some math, and boom, you've calculated the time, which is not bad for 1291, right? Yes, that's true. Okay, so now it's the middle of the night. So now you have no sun, you're lost wherever you are, and you would really like to go home. Today, if I'm walking around New York City, I have no idea where I am, and I would really like to go home. I whip up my phone, and the first thing I do is hop onto Google Maps, right? I've done this tour a couple times for folks from Google, including some of the programmers who make the maps. At this point, they usually start high-fiving each other, and I say, gentlemen, calm it down. You're about (laughs) 700 years too late, because this thing does it too. I show them precisely how you would use the stars in order to geolocate and use your map. And then to take it one step further, I show them how they can change it if they move to a different latitude or a different time zone, one might say, to adjust it so that they can use this basically all over the world. Fabulous. Just fabulous. And I am, and I, having been, uh, the Islamic wing is uh, is one of my favorite areas, uh, wings at the Met, and I have seen that astrolabe, mm-hmm. and I can guarantee you there is nothing, what you said, <laughs> on the label. <laughs> Well, I think one of the things that really that I love and one of the things that has, has been such a joy for me with um, with Museum Hack is that um, as a tour guide and as an informal educator and as somebody working in, in this setting, I have been given such freedom by this company. All of our tours are truly driven by the interests and the passions of the guides who are leading them. So correct me if I'm wrong, Nick. I think I'm the only one who nerds out over astrolabes. You are. Right? You are the okay. only astrolabe. Right. Because I'm completely obsessed with them. I've spent far too many hours learning and reading about them. I even went on a trip uh, recently to Istanbul where there was a room of 30 astrolabes and actually broke down in tears. I was so touched (laughs) by the whole thing. Um, So every guide is empowered to do their own research and required to do as deep research as they possibly can to create incredible stories around the objects that they care about. So if you take a museum tour with one guide, it will be utterly different from the 
tour you take with the next guide, the second guide, because we are the ones who are developing the route and creating the what we're talking about based on the things that truly appeal to us. Um, which, which is, which has been such a joy because it is this ultimate freedom to just quite literally play in a museum and explore in a museum. And I feel like some of the excitement and passion and energy we get as we discover new things, dig even deeper, do even cooler research really is transported into our tours to our guests. Um, and I, it's also just tons of fun for us. Yes, I can tell. Uh, absolutely. And thank you. Thank you so much for uh, that little impromptu tour. Uh, and I now know all of my listeners are going to be running uh, to the uh, uh, to know a little bit more about Astrolabes uh, because they probably just thought it was a really pretty little sculpture. Um, but t- I, I want to dig just a little tiny bit deeper um, just to also assuage the, the concerns of perhaps some of my listeners or even my own curatorial instincts, which are, well, that's all fine and good. But what do the curators at the Met uh, think about your tours? Do you have any uh, chance to interface with them or do you get any pushback? I love talking to the curators at the museums that we work with. We did a college event recently at the Williams College Museum of Art, and we met with one of the curators on the night of the event, and we posted a video on our website, which is museumhack.com, and she was so happy to see our audiences interacting with the pieces like they never had before. People moving around in the space, laughing, taking pictures of it with their phone. I think what people don't necessarily realize about us is that while we may start with entertainment... We think that for today's audiences to truly be educated, they have to be entertained first. And so we start with entertainment and then we educate. And I love talking to curators because for us, it's really an experience to learn more about the objects and to share the enthusiasm that we have with all the hard work that they do. I will say, as, as I'm researching in the museum, as I'm continuing to develop my own skill and, and digging even deeper on the pieces that I already love, if I come across a curator, it makes my day. And we are the kind of people who will just keep asking them questions until they can't go anymore. Because we truly, we are so, we love them so much and we honor the work that they do so much that we just want to absorb as much of that because their passion is infectious to us and our goal is to transport that to our guests. Very well said. Um, I'd, I'd like to go back to something, Ethan, I think that you had said, um, may have been Nick, about the idea of co-creating uh, the experience. I mean, you know, when you were talking before about a, a two-hour two uh, program, I mean, that's a lot of time to be standing around listening to somebody talk, even you, Ethan, I'm sorry, my feet are going to get a little tired. So, uh, and that's frankly why I also didn't want to have the private tour uh, at the uh, at the Prado, um, just because I want to go at my own pace, and I want to see the things that I'm interested in. Uh, but so how, how do you sort of break this up and make make sure that that uh, the audience is also uh, uh, participating and and getting to uh, see some of the things that they're interested in. Wow, I love this question, and I also loved Carol how you phrased it. I don't know if you noticed, but you said, "How am I going to feel standing around?" You use the word pace and interest. How's it going to keep up with my own level of interest? And 
I think that what you're thinking about is a typical museum tour. But what Museum Hack does is a museum adventure. Our tours are not just museum tours. They are incredibly fast-paced. We usually see two to three times as many objects as the average museum tour. And we have activities. We have drink breaks. Our nighttime tours, for example, usually involve a glass of wine. There's a lot of moving around. There's social activities within the group. This is anything but a regular museum tour. And oftentimes on the nighttime tours that Ethan leads, it's common for them to last three or more hours. And the number one thing that people say that we hear again and again after they go on a museum hack tour, they say, I never knew that I could have so much fun inside the museum. And that's what we want everyone to say, uh, and and it becomes so challenging. But and and Nick, I'm 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 really glad that you answered the your the question I ask in the in the way you did because I because one of the challenges that I think as a industry is that we have a really tough time communicating outside of our little world of you know people who love museums to understand that museums are completely social environments i mean they are they are place based uh experiences uh that in fact uh, encourage you to think more deeply about yourself and others and share that information. But ironically, we don't have that reputation sort of outside of our little group. That's, that's really interesting. I want to take like a breather to notice that all the people who work in museums are doing really great work. And the types of things that we're doing, we constantly are reminded by museum educators, they're not necessarily new activities, right? There's other museum tours where they do selfie challenges and where they do games. I think what's interesting is how Museum Hack packages this, not only in our marketing material, but really in the live experience to guarantee that ultimately the number one thing we're looking for at the end of the tour is did our customers love it and how likely are they to recommend it to one of their friends? That's uh, that's incredibly important, uh, particularly as you sort of scale up your uh, your your business model. As you say, you're only two years old, and if you don't uh, if you don't get that that word of mouth built, uh, that's going to keep you a little little uh, well prevent you from doing some of the great things that you want to do. Absolutely. So maybe let's talk a little bit about some of those those uh, those greater things. Uh, you had talked uh, earlier in the program about starting to do some workshops and uh, expanding your ed- and the fact that your business model has shifted. Uh, so how has the business model shifted? Our business model has shifted in that originally when we were just serving the consumer market, like millennials selling tours to New York City residents between the ages of, say, 20 and 35. Today, that represents maybe only about a third of our actual sales revenue. Now, we've grown to provide corporate experiences at the museums. We love working with museums all around the world to help them set up corporate team-building tours to bring in new groups. Here in New York, we bring in 
major banks. We've brought in huge companies on the software side like Spotify and Google. And then we're also now doing museum consulting work, leading workshops and special events at other museums, not just in the U.S., but also all around the world. And just to address maybe what you mentioned before about the price of some of our tours, should I talk about that, Carol? Yeah, that, this is a good time to do that. You mentioned, and a lot of people see the price of our tours, $59. Our nighttime tours are $89. And let's be honest, for people working in museums in the public sector, I think there's a sticker shock on a lot of that, that, that that's a very expensive experience when museums are built on providing free public education. And I completely want to acknowledge that. I want to agree with it and recognize that Museum Hack, to a sense from most museum people, probably has an easy job. You could say, man, if I had $90 per person and could do tours for eight or nine people, I could do amazing things. And that's what we're trying to help people do. We're starting with the premium model, and then we're letting it support and sustain a business that we know can then be around for 10 or 15 years. So just like, let's look at an example like Tesla, the car manufacturer. Have you ridden in a Tesla, by the way? I never have. I never have. I want to. I want to as well. When they first launched their car, they came out with a luxury sedan. And a lot of people lambasted them. They said, you're launching an electric vehicle that's got a price tag of ninety dollars to $120,000. How is that going to change the world? And what Elon Musk said, he said, let us build a business for the luxury market first to sustain the operations and prove the model. And then it's going to trickle down to the rest of the community. That's what we're doing at Museum Hack. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for the courage of, uh, of, of t- uh, essentially talking about some of the, uh, the challenges uh, that you face right now. I, I, uh, I appreciate that very much. I do think uh, it, it is true that as uh, museum professionals, we want to make sure that all are welcomed in our museums. And you are, in fact, welcoming a group that perhaps wasn't feeling it uh, right now, even though they may be uh, on our premium side. Uh, I think that they're, that uh, that's a, it really is a valid point. Um, Nick, we're going to have to take a break uh, here again. But before we do, uh, I, I appreciate you mentioning the website uh, in this first section. But would, if people are now really jazzed they either want to come to New York and take one of your tours or perhaps they want to uh, uh, contact you for a workshop. How would they do that? Oh, man. We have an awesome website that we built at www.museumhack.com. I'll tell you the secret little feature on our site. If you go to our website and at the very top in the menu, you click News. It goes into this special blog that we've written that lists funny videos with our staff, interviews with some of our customers, corporate client testimonials. That's my favorite part of our website. So it's museumhack.com. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we still have lots more to talk about and share and a few laughs probably. So stay (laughs) tuned. Uh, We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Do you feel like you are alone in a desert? Often we feel alone with no place to turn for help and guidance in our troubles that always seem to be so overwhelming. Stop. Take an hour each week to tune in to Stream in the Desert with Dr. Rita Huang. Dr. Rita will share stories of people just like you, intended for you to find some inspiration in their problems and solutions. The most important thing is that you are not alone. Others have been in the same place. Share some time with us every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and on demand on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You are listening to Museum Life. And we have been talking with Nick Gray and Ethan Angelica uh, from the company called Museum Hack. We've been having a lot of fun, and we've also been talking about some some pretty serious issues having to do with the uh, museum community and making sure that we are accessible to all. But I wanted to get uh, back to something that was said earlier, and I think, Nick, you were talking uh, about it a little bit when when you were just sharing how the organization got started and you were talking about, um, you know, having a casting call and, you know, Ethan responded to a casting call, uh, which is a uh, term that, you know, we use in theater. We don't often use it in a museum setting. You know, we talk about interviews or we talk about docent training. And, and uh, as my listeners know, I am really, uh, I harp on the, the value and the importance of vocabulary, uh, 
particularly as we're trying to do new things. So I'm wondering if you could uh, both, uh, maybe Ethan, you'd like to start, uh, just what are some of the tips or mindsets uh, that you might share with other organizations or with other individuals who, who want to up their game a little bit more? Sure. Um, so I've had the opportunity um, on behalf of and with Museum Hack to do a lot of uh, outreach with museums and to go to some of their spaces and have a chance to work with their staff. And it's a, it's a joy. But the thing that I always am very clear with everyone is that what we are trying to do is not replace what you're doing. We're trying to offer you more tools and supplements for your bag of tricks. Um, if I show up in a space, I certainly don't know the clientele of a museum or their collection uh, as well as the people who work there. So our, our goal is always to, to give you more things that you can play with that is specific to your audience. Um, so um, what I find particularly compelling and what I always talk with museums about is um, we are obsessed with storytelling. And I feel that storytelling is something that is very much in vogue today. If you think about uh, podcasts, and speaking on one is amazing, um, but you think about what people are sort of listening to, a lot of that takes a storytelling tact. And so we want to try and bring some of that into the museum. And the idea behind storytelling is that it actually – um, there have been studies done recently that show that it does it changes your brain. It actually releases oxytocin, which is the cuddle hormone, and it makes you feel closer to the person you're speaking to, whatever you're looking at, or the institution in which you are standing. So I believe that it is one of the best ways in order to bring people back to a museum space. So my encouragement is to find a way to create narrative. Um, tell a story in the space. Get people to, to see beginning, middle, and end. Give them moments of spark that get their brains going. But put it in that narrative context because by doing that, you're actually chemically changing their brain and making them more receptive to you, to the object, and to the full experience. It's become a bit of an obsession of mine. I've, I spend hours staying up late all night. And actually, we did a storytelling workshop uh, last night to sort of continue to up our own game. But approaching it in that way is so effective and is, is the thing that I think really has, has helped push us forward in, a, in an incredible way. Thank you. Uh, I, I agree with you, whether it's uh... – you know, it is the term of the moment, uh, mm -hmm. but but we do also know historically that we're as human beings, we are innately storytellers. Yes. However, something can happen, a, sort of a bad alchemy happens where the nicest people that I've known mm -hmm. can stand in front of, well, whether it's a painting or whether it's a museum diorama, and all of a sudden, all of that nice, warm, cuddly, mm -hmm. passionate feeling like goes away, and all of a sudden you start talking <laughs> about the taxonomy uh, of, of, the, uh, of the objects that you're 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 looking at instead of telling a story how right. how how do you, you know, what <laughs> Help, help. Help, sure. No, absolutely. I mean, well, at Museum Hack, we have a, a storytelling format that we have created that we call our elements of a hack. But really what it boils down to is reminding yourself why you love this thing. 
Because, you know, yeah, maybe we need to talk about the way the taxonomy works and all that. But those are elements, those are important elements that need to be there. But really what people are going to connect to and what's going to keep you driving forward is reminding yourself why you're here and why you love this. I mean, no one gets into museums to become rich. Let's be honest. You know, no one's, we are all here because we have a genuine love and passion for that. And I feel like reminding yourself what it is. I mean, for me, when I like to talk about, I love, I love Manet and I hate Monet. Sorry. I feel like we're going to get emails <laughs> about that one now. If you take my tour, I will be completely upfront about it. But why do I love Manet? He was an amazing, crazy, weird human being who has all this awesome scandal in his back life and was doing things to just mix it up. That's what gets me invested in him. And once I get back on that train, I talked about Manet hundreds of times. Once I keep reminding myself and my audience of what it is that I truly love about him and start to tell his story, that catapults me right into a place where I can continue to talk about what he is doing with form, what he is doing in terms of moving uh, forward in art history, where he is bringing us to, he's beginning to move us into the impressionist period. You know, that kind of passion and energy that ignites me and ignites my personal love for the subject matter brings that narrative. So I always tell people um, when I'm working with museums, and actually I was doing a workshop this past weekend, it is about finding your honest truth and what you love and start with that. Start with a way to get yourself engaged, get yourself connected, and your audience engaged and connected. Once you've all, once we've tipped ourselves off of what is expected, of an experience, and we've all engaged ourselves in what we truly love about this object, you just start flying. Thank you. Uh, I, that, that, uh, that's a great testimonial. But the other thing that I might add, and Nick, mm-hmm. I, I think you would agree, is you are, an ext- you are extremely courageous because you give of yourself in the environment, face-to-face with people, and you don't even have to do it on, on, a, uh, on an elevated stage. You are really right there in the middle of it. So uh, I, I just want to applaud your courage, and I hope that as part of your workshops, you, are, you can also help uh, the rest of us to find our courage as well. I think it is a scary thing, but I also feel... Um, that it is an incredible reward. And I think most of the um, museum professionals who may be listening agree that there is truly nothing better than that moment when you see a group of people get as excited as you are about whatever it is you're talking about. I, there's, I mean, again, you know, I come from a, a performance background, a theater background. Um, it's really hard to do the same show eight times a week when you're standing in a darkened box and you can't see anybody in the audience. But if I'm standing in front of my astrolabe and I am back on talking about how much I love this thing uh, and all of a sudden I see everyone's eyes spark up, and and they are truly as excited and people are taking pictures and they're asking me about them and they want to know about TED Talks and they want to do their own research. There's truly nothing better. And reigniting that passion for me over and over and over and over is the thing that keeps me doing this because the, I, I can't imagine a better way to experience life. Um, <laughs> let me... Let me uh, I, I'm speechless, which hardly ever, ever happens. Uh, but, uh, but I, I can't wait to uh, get to New York and, uh, uh, experience this firsthand because even, uh, even over the radio, it's, it's been just fabulous. Uh, I, 
but I don't want to let either of you go. I mean, you know, we've talked about the scalability and, and I love it. You know, the idea of corporate, um, uh, corporate team building in a museum, you know, how cool is that? Uh, but we've been really focusing a lot on the Met. Uh, and I don't want anyone, uh, to get the impression that you really are focusing primarily or on art museums. You are also doing work at the American Museum of Natural History, one of my favorite museums in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you said, Williams College you know, is sort of a smaller institution. So, um, I, you know, I just want to give you both an opportunity to talk a little bit about, you know, different kinds of museums that are, are getting you jazzed right now. All right. I'd love to briefly speak, and then I may ask Ethan to talk about one that he did recently. Um, we Love working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's obviously where we're based out of and kind of our home base. It's my favorite museum in the entire world. But I think it's been a real honor for us to be invited to more museums all over. In the last probably four months, we've been to Germany, to Norway, to California, Massachusetts. We're working with a major museum in the Midwest right now. And we're excited to take all of the things that we've learned here at the Metropolitan Museum of Art where we do 10 to 30 tours per week. We're not just running the same game over and over. We really think of ourselves more like a live museum think tank where we come up with new ideas on a weekly basis and then we test them on these audiences that come to our regularly scheduled tours. So we're excited to share those best practices and the things that we've learned with other museums. Do you want to talk about one of the workshops? Yeah, had? so we had an opportunity to go to a, a huge science center in uh, California um, and do some workshops with their staff. And uh, what I think is is so compelling about what, what we've been sort of experimenting with and, and trying to share with other groups is that um, our techniques are, are very malleable. Um, the storytelling that, that we talk about and the storytelling that we use uh, isn't just something that is, requires a piece of art um, because, you know, we are able to take the stories that are behind incredible scientific discoveries or uh, animals that have incredible adaptations or the histories of major players in the field or even, you know, uh, taxidermy. Uh, taxidermy is a fascinating thing. <laughs> the more you learn about it, the cooler it gets. Um, and, we can, and we can continue to tell those stories and make these things even more human um, and, and make them even more relatable. Um, you know, I, I actually be, have a background a little bit as a science educator, and I know that people get a little bit scared by that kind of thing. So the ability to really engage that sort of innate human desire for narrative and couch what we're talking about and what concepts we're trying to get across in narrative makes it incredibly accessible. Um, What I also love about working in science institutions is that I think, you know, we go to the Met and regardless of whatever we're trying to break down, Nick, people still go in there and they think, okay, you know, pretty paintings, let's let the majesty of that wash over us. I think when you go to a museum and there is a giant, or excuse me, a science institution and there is a huge dinosaur skeleton in front of you, or you've got, you know, a taxidermy lion staring at you, there, the sense of adventure is already inherently there. And, um, the folks who do our, our tours at the Museum of Natural History very much embrace the idea of we are going on a crazy, insane, awesome adventure. And, that that translates in a way at AM&H that is incredibly exciting, and those tours are so high energy. Um, so 
our techniques are very malleable and, and work very well. And, and we had a lot of success this weekend working with, uh, the, the institution in California. Um, but I think it, it's not, it's so, somewhat unexpected because we think storytelling means art. Well, storytelling also means science. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Uh, to And I'm thrilled that you are uh, beginning to tease out those stories behind the scientific uh, phenomena because I, 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 that, and putting a face on, uh, on a topic that I, I love, uh, personally love so very much. Uh, we've got 30 seconds, guys. So here's the lightning round. I want you to both say one thing and only one thing that you want our, vis- our uh, listeners to remember. Look, the online world today, there's so many competitions for visitors' attention span. I believe that the future of entertainment is in the live experience. We try to do that with tours that are entertaining and engaging to get people entertained before we layer the base of education. I think museums are the physical space for that to happen. Fabulous. Ethan? Uh, I am obsessed with creating unique experiences over short periods of time that educate, entertain, or change. And I think those people working in museums, we are have a responsibility and duty to do that with everyone who comes in the doors. I uh, am so honored to be a part of a museum world of people who are already doing that. And I am excited that we are all coming together to collaborate and figure out a way to collectively up our game because museums are so important. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for being on the show today. And remember, you can contact Nick and uh, Ethan and all their wonderful people at museumhack.com. Don't forget, check out the news section. Gentlemen, it has been a true pleasure having you both on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. Thank you. And we will be back next week with another interesting topic. Remember, uh, shoot me a line, uh, send me a tweet. Uh, What are you thinking about and what should we be talking about on Museum Life? Until next week, this is Carol Bossert. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. <laughs>